Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Primary Care Anywhere, a podcast by the internal medicine residents of the University of Utah. My name is Saeed Arabi, and I'm a second-year resident. Together with my colleagues, Julie Williamson, Christy Jesme, Colton Long, and Josh White, I'll be presenting today's episode. Our topic today is one of the most commonly discussed subjects in primary care clinics, and for good reason. It's also one where primary care providers play a pivotal frontline role. Breast cancer is the most common cancer among women in the United States. Despite advances in treatment, it remains the second most common cause of cancer death among women. In 2023, about 297,790 U.S. women were estimated to develop breast cancer and 43,170 to die of it. One in eight U.S. women will develop breast cancer in their lifetime. Survival rates are much better when breast cancer is diagnosed early. Stage 1 disease, for instance, is associated with 98% five-year survival rate compared to a 27% five-year survival rate with stage 4 disease. This is where primary care makes the most impact on breast cancer patients, and this is the rationale behind the emphasis on breast cancer screening in primary care. Now let's use a case scenario to guide us into today's discussion. Imagine that Mrs. Smith, a 44-year-old African-American woman, comes to see you in your primary care clinic. She tells you she has been very concerned since her closest friend, Mrs. Johnson, who's 42 years old, got diagnosed with breast cancer about two months ago and is currently undergoing chemotherapy. Mrs. Smith wants to get checked out to see if she's at risk. She tells you that she has been married for 20 years and has three children. She had menarche at age 12 and continues to have a regular menstrual cycle every 28 days. She had her first pregnancy at age 26. She used combined oral contraceptive pills in the past but underwent a tubal ligation after her last pregnancy. She has no chronic medical conditions but is obese with a BMI of 39. She tells you that her maternal grandmother was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 68 and died of its complications, and her paternal grandfather had colon cancer. She does not have other history of cancer in the family, but there is history of type 2 diabetes and hypertension in several family members. Mrs. Smith has not noticed any lumps in either of her breasts. She has never smoked tobacco, is a social alcohol drinker, and has never used illicit substances. She has worked as a high school teacher her entire career. As you think about this case, consider the following questions. What are some features that suggest a woman is high risk for breast cancer? What is the appropriate breast cancer screening approach for a woman like Mrs. Smith? And what are some measures for prevention of breast cancer? We'll discuss each of these topics in this episode, so hang in tight. Hi, my name is Julie Williamson and I'm a third year resident. When talking about breast cancer screening, it's important to understand each patient's individual risk. So let's talk about risk assessment. There are three general categories of breast cancer risk, high risk, moderately increased risk, and average risk. Women at high risk include those with a personal history of breast cancer or atypical hyperplasia on a previous breast biopsy, that also includes those with a known genetic predisposition, such as any of the BRCA mutations, or those with a history of prior radiation to the chest. Our standard guidelines do not apply to these patients. 
Differentiating patients at average risk versus moderately increased risk is more challenging, but important since it will guide the conversation with patients regarding age to start screening, intervals between screening, and additional imaging modalities if indicated. Factors that increase risk include family history, notably of first-degree relatives, estrogen exposure, and breast density. Those with their first period before age 12, menopause after age 55, or nulliparity or first pregnancy at age 30 or older all increase risk due to increased endogenous estrogen exposure during their lifetime. Oral contraceptive pills increase current risk of breast cancer, but note that former use of OCPs does not affect risk. And hormone replacement therapy for postmenopausal women has not shown to increase risk if it's for less than five years. Let's talk a little bit about breast density. There are four categories of breast density, with class A being the least dense and class D being the most dense. It's important to note that this is a radiographic classification and cannot be distinguished on physical exam. Breast density also decreases with age, so a patient's density class may change over time. Breast cancer risk increases with breast density, with those with heterogeneously or extremely dense breasts, or class C or D, having a relative risk for breast cancer of 1.3 compared to those with fatty or scattered fibroglandular density, or class A or B. Not only does breast density increase risk of breast cancer, but it also decreases the sensitivity of mammography, so you may want to consider and discuss additional imaging modalities for these patients. There are tools that can help calculate risk, including the Breast Cancer Risk Assessment Tool, also known as the Gale Model. This was designed by the National Cancer Institute, and it's super easy to find online and calculate risk quickly during a clinic visit. Risk factors included are age, race, family history, reproductive risk factors that estimate the endogenous estrogen exposure, and any previous breast biopsy results. This calculates the patient's five-year risk and lifetime risk. If the lifetime risk is greater than 20%, additional screenings with MRI are recommended. Note that this calculator does not take breast density into account. Other lifestyle factors not included in the risk assessment tools include postmenopausal obesity, sedentary behavior, and alcohol use. It's important to discuss these with all patients to not only help them better understand their risk to guide their decisions about screening, but also to counsel them on lifestyle change to reduce overall risk of breast cancer. Bottom line, be sure to calculate each patient's risk, but also take breast density on prior mammograms and other lifestyle factors into account when discussing their risk and individualizing their screening plan per the guidelines. Now let's turn to breast cancer screening guidelines. Guidelines for screening vary by society. In this portion of the podcast, we will explore how society recommendations differ and discuss how you can use shared decision-making with your patients. To begin, all guidelines recommend that women in their 50s have mammograms. However, some recommend starting as early as age 40. Additionally, guidelines differ on whether women should be screened annually or biennially. As we discuss these guidelines, keep in mind that women who are at high risk for breast cancer or managed as a disease follow-up are excluded from routine screening guidelines. Since there's a strong relationship between age and risk for breast cancer, women with or without moderate risk factors should be screened using age-based protocols. Mammography results are reported using the American College of Radiology BI-RADS classification. 
The scale ranks risk of malignancy from 0 to 6 and breast density from A to D. Let's discuss a few examples of breast cancer screening guidelines according to individual societies. For example, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists state that beginning screening age 40 to 49 should involve shared decision making. Then, beginning at age 50, women should be screened annually or biennially. In contrast, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force states screening should be started at age 40 and continued biennially to age 75. In terms of stopping screening, guidelines recommend discontinuing mammography between ages 75 to 80. Now let's turn to the effectiveness of mammography at reducing mortality. Meta-analyses have consistently shown that compared to control participants, groups offered mammography had a reduction in risk for breast cancer mortality of 15 to 20%. Keep in mind, this reduction in mortality increases with a patient's age until 70. When considering the sensitivity of mammography, note that sensitivity is lower for women age 40 to 49 as compared to older women. This difference can be attributed to the greater amount of dense breast tissue present in younger women. As women age, dense breast tissue is replaced with fatty tissue, thus making malignancy more clearly seen on imaging. Now let's transition to the harms of screening mammography. For a patient who undergoes 10 years of annual screening, the cumulative risk of at least one false positive is 50 to 60%. This can result in significant anxiety in addition to mistrust in mammography. Additionally, mammography involves radiation equivalent to that of a chest radiograph. You may have patients ask about 3D mammography, which is also known as digital breast tomosynthesis, or DBT. There are currently no guidelines recommending DBT over traditional 2D mammography. Keeping this in mind, there is emerging data suggesting that DBT reduces recall rates, reduces false positives, and is, has equal, if not improved, cancer detection rates in comparison to 2D mammography. I'll wrap up our section on screening by emphasizing the importance of shared decision-making. Each patient has different experiences with breast cancer, different calculated risks, and different life expectancies. A decision to begin screening a woman in any age category, whether age 40 or age 50, involves a comparison of potential benefit versus potential harm. Hi, I'm Colton Long, and I'm a PGY1 internal medicine resident at the University of Utah. Now that you've learned about risk assessment and screening, I'll be reviewing breast cancer prevention. When talking about breast cancer prevention, we can break things down into three different categories, lifestyle modifications, surgical prevention, and risk-reducing medications. Let's start with lifestyle modifications. The benefit of this approach is that it is appropriate for all women, it can take many forms, and you can start at any time. As an example, one lifestyle modification which can reduce the risk of developing breast cancer is getting more exercise. Research has actually shown that increasing your physical activity has a dose-related effect on reducing the risk of breast cancer. This means that the more you increase your physical activity, the more of a reduction in risk you can see. In addition, this benefit is unrelated to a person's adiposity or menopausal status, meaning that any exercise, 
even if it doesn't lead to a sustained weight loss, can be beneficial. Aside from exercise, paying attention to the things you eat can also help prevent breast cancer. A systematic review found that eating a healthy diet rich in vegetables and low in saturated fats and processed meats may reduce the risk of breast cancer. In addition, multiple separate studies have shown that alcohol use increases the risk of breast cancer in a dose-dependent manner, so limiting use can lower your chances of developing it. Moving on from lifestyle modifications, the next method to prevent breast cancer is surgical prevention. This is specifically recommended for women with BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations who are at greatly increased risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer. For these women, bilateral prophylactic mastectomy and oophorectomy has shown to reduce rates of breast cancer development and associated mortality. Finally, the last category of breast cancer prevention is risk-reducing medications. These fall into two major categories. Selective estrogen receptor modulators, or SERMs, which include tamoxifen and raloxifene, and aromatase inhibitors, which include anastrozole and exemestane. Collectively, these agents reduce the risk of breast cancer by limiting the effects of estrogen on breast tissue. The major difference between the two groups is that SERMs selectively limit estrogen's effects on breast tissue while preserving its effects on various other tissues, while aromatase inhibitors inhibit the conversion of androgens to estrogen systemically and limit estrogen's effects everywhere in the body. Both of these classes of medications are recommended for women with a 5-year risk of breast cancer greater than 3% or a 10-year risk greater than 5%, and choosing the correct agent involves weighing their individual pros and cons. We'll start with SERMs, the first of which is tamoxifen. This drug blocks estrogen in the breast tissue while preserving its effects in the uterus, liver, and coagulation system. This makes it an excellent option for premenopausal women who hope to conceive and need estrogen for their uterine tissue. Patients and providers should keep in mind, though, that by preserving estrogen's effects on the uterus, patients will actually have an increased chance of endometrial cancer, with a relative risk of about 2 when compared to placebo. Other adverse effects include an increased rate of thromboembolic events, as well as an increase in basomotor symptoms like flushing. The other serum is raloxifene, and unlike tamoxifen, this blocks estrogen in both the breast and the uterus, and instead preserves its effects on bone. This means that patients will actually have a reduced risk of endometrial cancer as compared to tamoxifen. It's also indicated for patients with pre-existing osteoporosis since it preserves estrogen's effects on bone. That being said, it does still carry a risk of thromboembolic events as well as vasomotor symptoms. Fortunately for patients and providers, these two serums have actually been compared head-to-head -head in a randomized controlled trial called the STAR trial. The study showed that tamoxifen was more effective in reducing invasive breast cancers with raloxifene being only 76% as effective. However, it produced nearly twice as many cases of endometrial cancer and also had slightly more thromboembolic events. Moving on from SERMs, the other major class of medications are the aromatase inhibitors, anastrozole and exemestane. These medications have not been compared to one another or to SERMs in any large RCTs, so the major difference between the two and what should ultimately guide patients and providers in their decision-making is their side effect profiles. 
Additionally, these are great medications if patients have any contraindications to SIRMs, such as a history of thromboembolic events or strokes. If you're considering an aromatase inhibitor, for anastrozole, side effects include musculoskeletal pain, hypertension, vasomotor symptoms, and vaginal dryness. Meanwhile, exemestane has similar musculoskeletal pain and vasomotor symptoms, but has no hypertension. With all of this information in mind, patients and providers should weigh the benefits and the risks of each of these medications and then decide on the appropriate agent. Once they've done so, the next step is to decide on the duration of therapy. Most of the trials which established these medications' efficacy used a five-year course of therapy, so this is often a standard duration. That being said, there is some data to suggest that a 10-year course of therapy may actually be superior in the prevention of breast cancer. However, it's unclear whether the increase in adverse events that comes with an additional five years is truly outweighed by the protection against breast cancer. With this in mind, patients and providers need to decide on a duration of therapy that is individualized to the patient based on their personal risk of breast cancer recurrence, along with other factors such as their menopausal status, pre-existing osteoporosis, or a history of risk factors for thromboembolic events. So, going back to Mrs. Smith, we can see that she's average risk based on her features such as age, age of menarche, age of first pregnancy, among other things. She does not have high-risk features such as personal history of breast cancer or chest irradiation or first-degree family history of breast cancer. In fact, we can calculate her five-year risk of developing breast cancer, and it will be 0.8%, which is about the average of 0.9%. It will be appropriate to offer her a mammogram after a shared decision-making process involving discussion of benefits and risks of screening in her case, and then repeat it every two years or annually depending on the guidelines being followed. The main things Mrs. Smith can do to decrease her risk of breast cancer would be to increase her physical activity, decrease her weight, and eat a healthy diet that includes vegetables and limits saturated fats and processed meats. Because her risk is average, there is no indication to prescribe her a selective estrogen receptor modulator or an anastrozole inhibitor. So... This wraps up another episode of the Primary Care Anywhere podcast. We thank you for joining us and listening today. We hope you enjoyed the episode and learned something new. We look forward to meeting you again in a brand new episode of the Primary Care Anywhere podcast. Until next time.